Amen. You may go ahead and have a seat. We're delighted to be gathered together today. Special welcome to you on this Communion Sunday. And uh, we look forward to serving communion, getting our hearts ready over these next moments to come to the communion table to remember the finished work of Christ, his broken body for us, his shed blood for us, and the truth of the gospel that we walk in. Uh, This uh, evening, we're going to be gathering again, as several of you heard this morning, uh, we had in the announcement time, we have our Living Waters prayer service. How many of you have been to a Living Waters prayer service before? Several of you have. We want to encourage you to come out. What a wonderful way to learn to pray by gathering together with people and just going for it, just doing it. We want to encourage you to do it. Nobody is a natural born prayer. Uh, We all need to learn. We all need to grow in that. And we trust that the Living Waters service tonight will be a great step for you. Some of you may even know what great philosopher it was that is credited with the statement, we've got to pray just to make it today. Does anybody know who what philosopher said that? That was MC Hammer circa 1990, that's right. So shout out to all my Gen Xers uh, in the house today. Uh, Tonight when we gather for Living Waters, Pastor Seth will actually be uh, helping lead us through as we pray our mission. Pastor Seth had a great message last week for you talking about uh, living out our mission and then specifically we're gonna be praying for the Atlanta mission team that's getting ready to go and do ministry later this summer. And so come on out tonight. We trust that'll be a blessing uh, for you and it'll be a way for you to take part in the ministry that's happening. We're gonna continue on today in our series called No Other Gospel. It's a study in Galatians. If you have your Bibles, you can flip to Galatians chapter two. When we talk about no other gospel, we're talking about the gospel, which is the good news of the finished work of Christ that elevates you and humbles you at the same time. Uh, I could never earn the righteousness of God, therefore I am humbled, and yet I have received through Christ that which I could never earn, and that elevates me. Uh, I want to give big props to Pastor Dan and Pastor Seth, who led uh, our preaching ministry over these last couple of weeks while the Henning crew was on vacation. We had a great time away. We're eager to be back here with you today. Uh, and listening to those messages uh, was amazing uh, to hear about the transforming power of the gospel and to hear about the expanding power of the gospel. And so we continue to pray into that and pray that that will not just be words or good ideas, but actual lived out reality in your life and in mine. Uh, In Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read today in verses 11 to 21. This first section we'll read 11 to 14 uh, as we continue on. So if you're there with me, we have it up on the screen as well. Would you follow along as I read? When Cephas, Paul writes, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that Uh, How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? May God add blessing to the reading of his word. Keep your finger there. We're going to continue on in this passage, but I want to stop you there to take a look at that. Let's get uh, just a little bit of background down. Some of you have been with us throughout the duration of this series. Some of you perhaps have not. What is Paul actually trying to accomplish in chapters 1 and 2? 
Well, first of all, it's pretty obvious from the first chapter. He's calling the church in Galatia, you've got to get back on track with the gospel. Do not try to complete in the flesh or in your, in your own efforts that which God has begun in the spirit. And that's essentially the thesis of the whole book. That's the letter that he is writing to them. But it, it brings up this idea of process which becomes a very important part of Paul's ministry and teaching. When you think about things like Philippians 1.6, I love Philippians 1.6, being confident that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 is a wonderful anchoring passage for me, both powerful and compelling, especially when I'm feeling stuck especially when I'm feeling weary or lost or uncertain, and then I'm reminded I'm in a process here, and you're in a process. We encourage you with those words frequently to say, look, you gotta remind yourself, I am in a process. And we see this with the Galatian church now that that Paul is leading them back. They're getting off track. He wants them to get back on track. Uh, This also stands out to me, though, just by way of a little bit of background. Uh, I'm struck by this idea. If you read in the beginning of chapter 2, that Paul references that it's been 14 years, and it's actually been 17 years total since the time of his conversion, that now he is moving into this place of greater ministry. 14 years. Uh, You can read about Paul's conversion in Acts 9. It says that three years later, Paul begins to meet the apostles, and that's sort of a fascinating thing because they're giving glory to God because they're realizing the guy that used to oppose us and oppress us and come after us is now like not only with us but championing the cause that he used to fight against because of the transforming power of the gospel. But after that initial meeting with the apostles, it's been another 14 years. We read this in the beginning of chapter 2, and the ministry continues. And that just, it just feels like something to pause on. Think about how much you've changed in the last 14 years. Some of you maybe don't have enough decades under your belt to even remember back 14 years. Uh, Some of you do. But when you think about how much have you changed in 14 years, think about how many circumstances have changed. Think about how many ways that you've grown, the steps forward, the, the failures backward, the whole process of growing 14 years. So it's an amazing thing to just stop and reflect, though we can read that in a few seconds. uh, It represents a huge part of Paul's ministry and trajectory that God was taking him on. I think another thing that Paul is doing in these first chapters, though, is he is authenticating his calling. He is making sure that the Galatians know that he is not coming to them with his good ideas, but he is coming in the authority of Christ himself. Paul is not bragging, but he is affirming that he is under Christ's authority. Without confidence in himself, he has full and deep confidence in the work of God's Spirit. I was reminded of, uh, I heard about a professor that was called into a trial to serve as an expert witness. And so as the lawyers were kind of grilling him on the different things, the one lawyer asked him, like, what is the the credentials that you have uh, that allow you to speak as an authority over this? And so he gave them this answer. He said, I am the best among all living experts in my field. One of his friends pulled him aside afterwards and said, dude, you are not one to like brag on yourself. Like, wh- why did you give, give that kind of uh, bold of an answer? And he said, I was under oath. I had to tell the truth. This is how it was. So here's Paul. He's saying, like, I'm not coming to you with my best ideas, but I am coming to you under the authority of Christ. 
Of that he had no doubt, and so he's writing to them. He's calling them to get back on track. Today, as we get our hearts ready and as we look through this passage, I want to just uh, look at sort of three sections with you. The first is conflict and correction in the verses that we just read. Uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, by the way, the, the apostle Peter. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. So in this first section, verses 11 to 14, let's just talk for a moment about conflict and correction. We see Paul confronting Peter over an issue, and, and listen to this one, he says this. He's confronting Peter over an issue that he could not overlook. And that's actually a really important statement. Um, if you have read, how many of you have read Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker? Anybody read that book? Several of you have. I think that should be like required reading for everyone who wants to be a mature Christian. Ken Sandy, uh, the, the peacemaker. Get it? If you haven't had a chance, I would encourage you to look at it. One of the things he talks about is in this call to be peacemakers, there are oftentimes conflicts that you can just simply overlook. That is actually an option. And the first time I read that, it was kind of like news to me. Not because I'm looking for conflict all the time, but I've never really thought about it that way. That there are offenses that will come probably before this day is over. You will have a disagreement or a, different, a difference of opinion or somebody will do something against you. And one of the options, not the only option, but one of the options is you can simply overlook it. Now in this case, Paul said, I can't overlook this. Why? Well, it's not simply because he has already stated that he wasn't a people pleaser. That was in Galatians 1. We talked about that. Uh, but this was an affront in Paul's mind to the expanding and transforming gospel of Christ for all people. This, the, you, you can understand the circumstance when you read it. You've got Jewish believers who are receiving Christ and God's working among them and they're receiving the work of the Holy Spirit among them, the gifts of the Spirit. So the early church was Jewish people. But then the unthinkable started happening. They didn't realize the gospel was gonna actually go outside of God's chosen people to begin to bring others in. And this is the Gentile groups. So people that didn't have knowledge of or practice of the Jewish customs are now also coming to faith in Christ. And so there's this kind of like conflict emerging, like what are we gonna do? And it didn't take very long for the church to kind of find one of its first places of saying, how then should we live? How do we handle this? And uh, so Paul confronts Peter because he says, look, you're, you're hanging out with people who are not like you, and then all of a sudden when the religious people come in, you're allowing through fear to be sort of pushed away from them, and now you're, you're working against the message of the gospel. You can't model oneness in Christ while you're yielding to a religious spirit that stokes pride and divides with this sense of hierarchy, okay? So this is what Paul is, is speaking against in Peter's life. It's not because he has a difference of opinion with Peter and he thinks that he's right, but it is for the sake of the gospel that he's saying, Peter, we can't do this, my team, your team sort of thing. And this again, just fascinating because Peter is the great missionary to the Jewish people and Paul is the great missionary to the Gentile people and so they gotta figure out how to work this out. This balance is actually hard to find. Where do you draw the line to say this is a, an issue of gospel significance? But Paul's saying that should be the issue. And when it comes to infringing on the work of the gospel, we need to address it. So he does that with Peter. There is this idea of conflict and correction. Now I wonder, it says almost nothing about Peter's 
uh, internal response here. But I wonder about that a lot. How many of you have ever been corrected before? Someone literally has come to you and said, I just need to have a word with you, you know? It's not fun, but how many of you have actually found that experience to be a beneficial thing in your life? Right? I mean, there's just something humbling about being able to say, you know what? I hear you and you're right. It doesn't mean that every time somebody comes to you that they're right, but to be able to hear somebody who is saying, calling something out of you is actually a beautiful thing. I've been meditating a little bit on this Proverbs 27 passage that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. There's something like, I, I feel something really deep when I hear those words. And it goes on to say, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. But what it's saying is like a friend who's willing to wound you, to bring something to your attention as Paul is with Peter and he's saying, brother, for the sake of the gospel, you need to change the way that you're doing this. Something very beautiful about that. Something hard about it as well. C.H. Spurgeon said this about such friendships. He said, true friends put enough trust in you to tell you openly of your faults. Give me for a friend the man who will speak honestly of me before my face, who will not tell first one neighbor and then another, who will come straight to my house and say, Sir, I feel there is such and such a thing in you, which, as my brother, I must tell you of. He said, that man is a true friend. He's proved himself to be so, for we never get any praises for telling people their faults. We rather hazard their dislike. A man will sometimes thank you for it, but he does not often like you any the better. And C.H. Spurgeon said, give me a friend who's going to be honest with me. For the sake of the gospel, Paul was willing to engage with the conflict with a brother in Christ. And here we have two great leaders who are working through conflict and correction. It is a part of the journey. It is a part of your gospel journey. The second section I wanna talk about is verses 15 to 18. So let's go back to Galatians 2 here. I'm gonna read through this and I'm just calling this point sinners and saints. It's a little confusing, so just bear with me as I read. Uh, I'll unpack it with you a little bit. Verse 15, uh, Paul continues on. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's basically, again, this is the point of this book, this letter. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. This is one of those passages that I read and I go, Paul, I don't quite know what you're talking about here. Uh, first of all, if he's so concerned about the division that Peter is putting by who he eats with and doesn't eat with, why is he referring to the Gentiles as sinners and the Jews, you know, like, like what's going on here? Well, let me explain just a little bit. First of all, there is a common distinction at this time, and the distinction was that the converted Jews who were the first to follow Christ, these were the good guys. These were part of God's chosen people. And in contrast, who were those that were outside of that called place? It was the Gentiles. It was the sinners that were out there. So that distinction is there among them. What they've got to figure out is what happens now that the sinful Gentiles are encountering the gospel of Christ and encountering a relationship with him. There's a commentary that was a little bit helpful to me if, it, if you want to follow along with some of these, this wording that is kind of strange when Paul says, I'm rebuilding what I destroyed, then I would be a lawbreaker. Here's, here's what this one commentary says. It says, ironically, the one who is most clearly seen to be a sinner 
is not the one outside the law, which is the Gentile, but is the one who's under it. So if Paul were to reintroduce the edifice of the law, he would merely prove that he stands condemned. The, the book of Galatians actually goes on to really unpack in further detail, so I'm gonna save some of this for some later messages. The reality of what does the law actually do? What does the law actually accomplish in us? And we actually have a really interesting perspective on that because we've just come through uh, teaching through the Pentateuch. So like, what did that actually give God's people? And Paul shows both the value in it and the limits as the book continues. So I'm gonna save some of that uh, for a later message. We'll just kind of sit on it for now. Uh, there is a word that we must understand, uh, and I think it's a really critical one for us as believers, and if we're gonna study uh, Galatians well, and that word is justification. Um, Paul references it here several times in these passages. Justification is a legal term by which we are declared to be in a right standing, and in this kind of context, it's a right standing before God. Like, what, what is your plea? Like the old hymns that say, like, I have no other confidence, I have no other plea, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It, it, that is a statement that says it's the finished work of Christ. That's what we talk about, the finished work of Christ all the time here because that is our justification before God. Um, we, in a secular sense, we use the term, not a lot, but usually when we use it, we mean something that is defensible. So we would say like, well, she was justified uh, in her actions. She was justified in her attitude. Or we would ask the question, sort of the philosophical question, do the ends justify the means? Um, uh, what I'd like to do with you just for a moment, because I think this is important for us. We can, we can pretty quickly come to a theological understanding reading Galatians that Paul's point again and again that he's underscoring is this. Your justification before God is exclusively found in the finished work of Christ. Nothing else. You can't add to it. You can't earn it. That's, this is the beauty of the gospel. It elevates us and humbles us at the same time. Okay? But understanding that, let's wrestle with this question for a moment because what I find here is actually something that could appear to be very culturally irrelevant. And I actually think as you dig in, it's incredibly relevant. The reason I say irrelevant is that most of your non-believing friends or family members or coworkers or whatever, maybe you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus or this faith thing is something you're trying to figure out. You're probably not asking the question, how do I have a right standing before God? Like I don't hear a lot of non-believing people asking that sort of question. They may actually be asking it at a much deeper level than they even perceive but at a surfacey level, I rarely hear people saying, well, how can I be justified uh, before God? However, there is this powerful drive and desire you see all throughout culture and all through conversations, headlines, etc., and that is a desire to be able to claim a sense of what we would call moral high ground, whatever the issue is. The last thing that you wanna be in today's day and age is to be in a, in a non-defensible kind of position. We want to be seen as justified in our actions and attitudes. You know what I'm talking about? Does that, like, raise a hand if that makes sense to you. Like, we feel that, personally, I feel that as your pastor, um, but that, that is a common theme that you see in your world today. We want to be seen as justified. There, but then here's where it gets kind of interesting. When you look at the world that you live in, have you noticed that we, I say all of us, 
tend to hold other people to a standard that we ourselves cannot maintain on our own. You know what I mean? Like when you really think about the things that frustrate you and the things that don't work right or the decisions that blah, 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 you know, usually it comes down to you saying, I want perfection from the people around me. And at the same time, we're essentially saying this is, in, this, is, this is inert, this is something that we just simply do inside. I also want perfection from you and grace for my imperfection because nobody's perfect. It's a weird mood that we find ourselves in in a lot of conversations. I'm gonna make it a little bit more real to you this way, what I would call the social media experiment of the last 20 years. This is really a wild thing to look at. When you see the amount of times, so I, I don't know what people were thinking when they first said, hey, Twitter sounds like a good idea. I have an opinion and I can just tell people all the time. I can just write it down. So what do we do? We created like a huge log of all of our sort of half-baked, sometimes very embarrassing uh, ideas or thoughts or, or comments or words or whatever. So a permanent record, a record of your poorly conceived thoughts and actions captured forever in the digital world. And what we've seen over the last year after year after year is people going like, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have written that. Or people calling out people because all you gotta do is go back and you look at their record and say, look what they said back in 2014. Cancel them quick, right? So this is just amazing. When you really think about what is it like to see kind of a part of, not all of, but a part of your heart exposed for what it is. This is kind of the social media experiment. Permanent record of your poorly conceived thoughts and actions captured forever in the digital world. Now here's where I would wanna just take this in this idea of justification. What does it mean to have right standing? This is where it kinda of gets a little personal. Think about this. If I was held accountable today for every thought, every action, every attitude, every word that I have ever spoken, thought, or achieved, how many of you would be excited about that little experiment? Like, you know what I mean? Sign me up. Most of us would go like, no way. Even if you've just come off of a tirade of what somebody else tweeted or said or da da da, I mean like, you can have all of that kind of hostility toward the brokenness in somebody else, but the reality is, if I exposed all of my brokenness, I would not be proud of it. I wouldn't be excited. So then the question is this. How would I do before a holy God? Not very well. If you're not a faith-based person or you're talking to people who are not faith people, you might even simply ask them this question. How would you do in front of other people? Not very well. This is a question of justification. The sinners and the saints. And so this is, Galatians starts to actually dig in and press into all of this stuff. The people that weren't born into being God's chosen and right people are finding faith in Christ. The people that were still need to find faith and forgiveness. The sinners and saints get kind of mixed up in the gospel. So this word justification becomes really important. Paul makes it very clear. Your justification is only going to be found in Christ. And this takes us into our last little section here, verse 19 to 21, uh, that I would call law and life. So we've got uh, conflict and correction. We've got sinners and saints. The last one, law and life. Uh, now listen to this. When we become convinced that we do not have the means for self 
justification. So if that little exercise or maybe the thought makes you a little shudder, shuddery to say like, what would it actually be like to have full exposure of all of the junk that I've ever done or thought or said or done or whatever. So like, if that kind of gets your attention, here's the good news. When we become convinced that we don't have the means for self-justification, we become primed for new life that comes, strangely, through death. Paul says this, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Now, just pause for a second. When you think, why was this so important to him? Why is Paul sitting down and writing this letter with all of this passion and all of this heart to say, Galatians, you don't want to miss this. It's because by adding the law back into the gospel, they're going in reverse. He says, you've got to die through the law to the law so that you can live for God. And then listen to this beautiful verse. Many of you know it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you were to do the same thought experiment and you were to replay all the times that Jesus actually did shine through and break through in your life, you'd actually have something to be proud of. And you do. So Paul's saying, don't don't miss this. I no longer live. Jesus Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is so important. And this literally means what Paul is saying, what Paul is actually saying here when we talk about how much does God love you? He loves you to the extent that Jesus deserves. We said that several weeks ago, right? I mean, that's an amazing thing. That means that imputed to you through the gospel of Christ and not through your works is all of the benefits of the joyful relationship that the Father has with the Son. That is yours in Christ. And you can't earn it. Amazing. The last verse that we're going to look at today, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the point of the letter to the Galatians. You can't earn it. If you could earn it, it actually diminishes the beauty of the work of Christ. But you can. I want to give one last example, then we'll go to the communion table. Uh, I told you that I've been listening to and, and following a lot of uh, Tim Keller uh, stuff. He was such a hero to me. He passed away recently, and so I've been kind of following a, a lot of things. He referenced something recently that I, that I uh, was, was struck by, never had heard before. It was from David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh Protestant minister. He was a medical doctor as well. Uh, who was influential in the Calvinist wing of the British evangelical movement in the 20th century. Uh, For about 30 years, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was the minister of Westminster Chapel in London. Uh, Very insightful person. And so here's something that he says, and I think it really highlights the importance of this, Galatians 2, 21. I do not set aside the grace of Christ, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Um, Here's what he says. Why do we say that the gospel is good news? The gospel is good news and not good advice. So I thought, oh, I think I know what he's talking about. I didn't. (laughs) 
Here's what he meant. Advice is counsel about something that hasn't yet happened. News is information about something that has already happened. So imagine this. Imagine that you are part of a community. Uh, There's an attack coming against your city. The king goes out to face that attack. You are left behind. What are you hoping for? A good outcome. Victory, right? So the king goes out, and he's going to fight this battle, and he's going to deal with this invading army. Now, here's what happens. If he wins... He sends messengers back to the people. And the message is essentially this. Celebrate because it's been done. The enemy is defeated. Live your life in the joy and freedom that's been won for you. And that's the critical piece. You didn't actually win that battle, did you? But it's been won for you. So the message is, is actually one of great joy to go about your business, to go about your life, to love others and to love God and to do the things. And guess what? You can do it in a freedom that you didn't have to lift a sword to fight for, but it's been imputed to you. That's a great message. We would all want that message. What happens if the king does not win? Yeah, that's not as good. Assuming that the army is not completely obliterated and somebody is actually able to come back, what comes back? He sends back military advisors with instructions, and the instructions essentially say this. You need to get ready because the enemy has broken through, and now you've got to fight for your life. That's it. You realize that every other religion in the world sends you military advisors, Here's what you got to do. This is the advice you need to follow. You need to shape up. You need to clean up. You need to get it right. You, you, you got to fight for your life. And that's what Paul is railing against. That in Christ, you're not called to fight for your life. Jesus has already done that. Every other religion sends advisors. We send messengers. And this gets right into the the mission that Pastor Seth was talking about last week. We send messengers, and what is the message? The battle's been won. Your greatest enemies have been taken hold of by Christ, have been taken into captivity by Christ, have been defeated by Christ, so we don't live in fear anymore. We don't live in bondage anymore. We don't live in suffering anymore. I mean, it's all of this stuff. Ultimately, Christ has won the battle. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of the judgment of God. We're not even afraid to have our books read with every thought and every action and every crappy thing we've ever done. See what I mean? That's a good message. Now, there's one other little observation with this. And at this point, I honestly don't know if it was Tim Keller talking or if it was uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. But here's the thing. It's funny. Um, The actions in both of those scenarios look similar, or they can. In other words, if the enemy's breaking through and we gotta do something about all this, you're gonna pray, you're gonna try to appease, you're gonna try to get it right and all that kind of stuff. Why? Because you're working to save your life. Uh, But your motivation is very different. If the battle has been won for you, what are you gonna do? You're gonna rejoice, you're gonna worship, you're gonna gonna want to follow the 10 commandments, you're gonna wanna do those things, but why? Not because you're in fear for your life, but because you're joyfully following the one who set you free. So you're gonna have actions that might even look sort of similar, but the motivation is totally different. We're no longer slaves to fear, but we respond out of joy. We do out of joy because of the finished work of Jesus. That'll keep you going for a while. And that's a good way to come to the communion table.
That's what we're going to do now. Go to the communion table and remember the finished work of Jesus. Um, If you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ today, the communion table is a remembrance of what he has done. And the reason the Bible says don't run to the communion table if you've never committed your life to Christ is that you are acknowledging a sacrifice that you haven't yet received. And so scripture says that's not a prohibition. It's actually an invitation to say, bow your knee to the lordship of Christ. Remember the finished work of Jesus. Don't stop trying to add to it, Paul would say to the Galatians. Rejoice in what he has done for you and tell him, Lord, I receive it. And then come to the communion table and celebrate it with all, with all those who would. Um, as the team comes forward to lead us, we're going to have just a little bit of worship time. We'll give you a little bit of uh, space just to pray and to meet with the Lord. I, I hope that as you, as you ponder the finished work of Jesus, that there's a sense of gratitude. And if nothing else, you can come to the table saying, I don't have to fight for my life. This is a good thing. This is good news of the gospel. Um, We'll give you a little bit of time and space. Do some business with the Lord. Maybe this is the beauty. You know, the Holy Spirit reveals things in us. Say, you know what? I'm, I'm I'm not in alignment right now with the gospel. I'm trying to be my own savior. I'm trying to do my own thing. I'm trying to do it my way or whatever. So I have opportunity to bring all of that into alignment with Christ. And then come to the table and remember that he not only has given us his finished work, but he gives us the strength for his ongoing work. Uh, Today, the folks who are going to help serve, you can make your way to the tables. We have two uh, opportunities for you. You can take uh, by intinction, which is the higher table. You can rip the bread and and dip it in the cup and take communion that way. If you prefer something that's a little less hands-on, we have the little two stacked cups that have a little bread wafer and cup together, and you can take that. Um, We do have a gluten-free option, which is over there where Emily is, and so we would encourage you to do that if that's a need that you have. And let us hear this scripture as we prepare our hearts. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You are a living proclamation of the finished work of Jesus as you meet him at the communion table. So Father, would you help us today to celebrate the good work that you have finished for us. Thank you that we don't fight for our life. Thank you that we rest and rejoice and the finished work that you have accomplished for us. Search our hearts even now. Show us the places that you want to do some business with us today. And church, when you are ready, make your way to one of the communion tables. Receive the communion uh, with joy this morning.